This is the Balancing Act by Security Compass, your guide to going fast while staying safe in today's digital world. Today we are joined by Rohit Sethi from Security Compass and Nicholas Chalin, Chief Software Officer, U.S. Air Force, to gain insights into building a DevSecOps program for a large government organization. In this podcast, we will talk about the challenges, key considerations, and the need to balance security with fast delivery cycles in the defense world. We will also cover the program structures being established across the Department of Defense and understand more about the ATO process. Okay, thanks. Hi, Nicholas. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your history, and the work you're doing with the Air Force? Uh, Sure. Good morning, and thanks for having me today. I think it's uh, pretty interesting to look at uh, the the background and and why we've been bringing a a CSO in the Air Force. I'm a I'm the Chief Software Officer of the Air Force. I'm also the colleague of the DoD Enterprise DevSecOps Initiative. Obviously, you can tell with my French accent that I was not born in the U.S. I moved to, to the U.S. about 10 years ago now. I founded 12 companies, so I was lucky to start pretty young. At 15, I didn't uh, go to college or anything. Uh, obviously, creating companies and building different businesses and having uh, employees is a different world out there. When you do that at, at scale and in 12 countries, I had offices. Uh, in Latin America, in in Canada, in the U.S., in in Europe, and then uh, Dubai, and I guess my background is really on the software side, cyber. I'm a developer myself, so I code in multiple languages, and I love building innovations. And so I built about 187 products over the last uh, 15 years that I sold to about 40, 1,500. Very uh, good at building IP and software and selling assets to companies and grow grow sales to a point where you can then take that and run with it by scaling through exits and I had a, I had a great great team to help me do that as well. And then I moved to, to the US and, and after my, my 12th company, I wanted to try to make a difference. And so I started DHS, I was a chief architect at DHS with also a special advisor for cyber, with cyber.gov and then started in the DOD First, as the special advisor for for cyber and DevSecOps at the OSD, and then now the chief software officer. It's been about uh, a year and, and five months now uh, that I've been the the CSO. That's pretty amazing. That's quite the background. Yeah. So you don't hear about a lot of people who have. Uh, first of all, not a lot of people have been that successful. Of the few that have have had a lot of strings of success from an entrepreneurial perspective, you don't hear of many that have gone to serve in the government as a way to give back. So I've always found that quite interesting and inspirational. Specifically, as we think about the CSO role, why did the Air Force create a chief software officer role? Yeah, at first, when Dr. Roper, who created the CSO role, came up with the idea, I, I was struggling because I want to do everything like we do it on the commercial side and there's no such thing as a CSO in uh, any organization on the commercial side yet, <laughs> although I, I start to hear that there are several companies are thinking about doing a similar role. But So I, at first, I was not too excited about the title, mm-hmm. but then I said to realize first the DOD and the Air Force is a little bit bigger, if not uh, much bigger than most organizations out there, and both in terms of funding and number of people and, and, and the mission and you know impact. And so... Really, I think the vision behind it was to have a, a central focus point for all software impediments, issues, enterprise services, so we can build those at scale 
and we can really help organizations and teams to move to DevSecOps cloud and remove uh, you know all the the impediments in their way but more importantly also build enterprise services to be able to adopt things like DevSecOps and Kubernetes and containers and so that's where having a central team to accredit and harden containers and build uh, multi-tenant DevSecOps managed services central repository for source code and containers uh, does make a lot of sense in fact that's really what is allowing us to move much faster than most organizations. And so the, I guess the, the role is really about solving the adoption and the culture of the training. And I think the the training piece is going to be what's going to define success for large organizations or small organizations with continuous learning and enabling teams to keep up with uh, the pace of relevance and giving them time and, and creating content that's not biased for one company or one cloud provider, and really keeping in mind the vendor looking aspect of things, which too often is dismissed without really understanding the impact for the long term of the mission. Right. And so that's what the CSO is about. That's interesting. You mentioned organizational change and, and, and change management as being a key piece there. Uh, and I speak to people every day who are struggling to uh, implement change in in large organizations, particularly people who are trying to to roll out agile programs, dev, DevOps, DevSecOps. There's certainly the technical aspect of it, but there's a level of buy-in you need from the senior management in a company anyway to be able to have these programs be successful. Can you talk a little bit, you know, about what have you done to to, to have people embrace? so much change in, in such a large organization. Yeah, I think uh, we're lucky. We have the leadership with a push from the top to, to the bottom, but we also have great people that are pushing from the bottom too. So we're getting both pushes at the same time, which really uh, helps getting things done. When I started, we already had Kessel Run doing great things and already pushing the, the boundaries of, of DevOps and now DevSecOps. And um, I think the, the critical piece was to really tie this back to the mission and explain why this mattered. And it's not just the tech, it's really almost a critical component to make sure that we are successful. And, and I think there's a couple of you know, pieces there. There's one, the timeliness aspect of being able to deliver at the right pace with a, the right baked in security. That's really kind of the second big um, uh, push there, which is the baked in continuous monitoring zero trust push we're doing to really have that uh, a sense of uh, baked in security. And that's why we you know people sometimes call it tech DevOps instead of DevSecOps. I don't like it because security never comes first. You, you don't build software unless you, I guess you're a cyber company, but usually don't build software just to be secure. You build software to innovate and bring, bring capabilities to your end users. And share of cyber is critical and important, and you want it to be there and baked in and into the process, but it's never the driver as to why you're doing things. And, and that's just short-sighted to start saying cyber is first. And never, ever would you sit down and say, oh, I'm going to just build my cyber stack first, and then let's see what I build next. <laughs> I mean, right. It just makes zero sense. First, you could not build a cyber stack if you don't know what you're building first, because it has to be based on what you're building and the technology uh, you're building and how you're going to you know, architect it. And so 
that baked in cyber piece was really a, a big push. And so I think that uh, timeliness aspect and looking at how many times we failed to deliver, you know, following a waterfall approach of five-year delivery where we spend billions and end up delivering something that just does not meet the, the requirements of the world fighter anymore because we're not enabling that continuous learning and that continuous feedback from the end user to make sure that building something that makes even sense to, to build, to begin with. When you define requirements five years ahead, unless uh, you're someone like Elon Musk, I'm pretty sure you're going to be wrong, yeah. uh, drastically wrong, and not just a little bit wrong. And by the time you, in, in fact, if you go and ask any program manager five years later, you're going to find them to say everything they had thought about is probably completely 80% at least different. The simple example of that is take your five years old uh, cell phone if you still have it and go try to use it now. We'll see how happy you are in terms of user experience. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great analogy. And it's interesting. So you bring up the security and, and security, cybersecurity compliance needs. This is the sort of thing that we deal with on a day-to-day basis and is really the, the theme of the podcast, which is that if you try to prioritize security and compliance in its own right without thinking about meeting the needs of the software you're building as a first priority, it's, it t- tends to be an uphill battle. And so the, the idea of you know balanced development is this concept of making sure we prioritize getting software out to its end users, uh, but doing so in a responsible way. So obviously in the, the world of defense, security and compliance are pretty key considerations. And you've talked about baking it in. At a really high level, what are some of the things that you guys are doing to approach balancing the competing demands of trying to get capabilities out to to the ground as quickly as possible, but still trying to meet the security and compliance needs? Yeah, I think what's always been interesting with my background is that I, I'm both a developer and a cyber guy. So I've always done this uh, without even thinking about it too much in my companies in terms of finding that balance between too much security, not enough security, and all too much innovation too fast with no, not enough security. And so my approach was always compliance last and security first, right? Because mm-hmm. compliance never really means security. And so while documentation does make sense and we need some documentation, I think that the key piece is really to have the, a, a, a cyber security that brings the top tier principles like zero trust, the behavior detection instead of basic CV scanning, automating um, as much as possible using GitOps. And so there are a lot of things we're doing that are removing the impediments to having even to think about cyber too much by using service meshes like Istio, decoupling things. So the the software inherits a lot of the cyber controls by uh, using the, the platform layer and the service mesh layer. And then we end up having very little left to do uh, less than 10% of the needs controls are left at the application layer. And so <clears throat> that already streamlines the process for, for the development teams, but at the same time, it is critical to have it as a, as a baked in. And that's why I keep using baked in as a key term, because the reason why we pick Kubernetes, for example, is because we can inject that, that sidecar container stack into the platform. So it's always there, regardless as if the development team even thinks about cyber I know I'm going to have my mutual TLS tunnels. I know I'm going to have my zero trust enforcement with Istio. I know I'm going to have my behavioral detection. So if there's drift, that's going to be killing the, the container. We have this concept of moving target defense where we kill containers. We treat, treat them like cattle. There are a lot of things we do 
that by definition, regardless of the quality of the developer or the, the software running on top of it, is going to mitigate a lot of the risk and the, the ability of a bad actor to move laterally across the system, both by using moving target defense and zero trust. And so I think once you start massively mandating this kind of key principles and left and right gates, you're left with a lot of flexibility when it comes to the development side, and you can now take more risk and try things out much faster, particularly when you move to microservices and, and you decouple your monolithic application because uh, another big risk for us when you put QAs on jets and, and bombers and, and space systems, you, you don't want to, of course, the system at risk in terms of the airworthiness or nuclear surety of the system. So that's very critical, of course, that we we have that coupling between the new features we bring and the airworthiness piece of the of the system, the two have to be decoupled. And so once you start really embracing these principles, you're allowed to take more risk, move faster, try things out, try new languages. You don't have to have that monolithic approach of moving everybody to the same language, same databases. So that gives you a lot of freedom, a lot of flexibility to try things out. Cool. Yeah, that's a really innovative approach. Seems like it's the way the world is bound to go in general, <clears throat> trying to in both bake in security as much as possible into the architecture of what people are building and ideally abstract it away from developers. You mentioned compliance coming as a last priority before security, which I think a lot of people buy into that philosophically. That doesn't, that doesn't, unfortunately doesn't take the compliance burden away in, in the space that you operate in now. If you could maybe just to help the listeners who are not familiar with uh, the federal government and, and some of the things that you guys have to do, you talk a little bit about the ATO process and, and what is meant by continuous ATO? How have you innovated in that, in that need? Yeah, so the government has a process called authority to operate an ATO, which is a very, at least usually a very uh, slow and manual process to uh, make sure that the software can be authorized, right, in DoD systems at different classification levels and assess the risk and assess the, the delta between <clears throat> the mandated requirements and the state of the system and understanding what's running on the system, port and protocol, all the ingress, egress. You're really looking at it. every piece of the system for compliance. So we use the NIST, the cybersecurity framework with the 853 uh, controls. And based on the criticality of the system, you have more or less controls to, to follow. The continuous ATO that we created in the Air Force first and now uh, that's spreading over the government is a whole different process. There used to be also something called a fast-track ATO, accelerated ATO. That is a whole other uh, thing, which is more about uh, automating that manual process. We went even beyond that with the continuous ATO, because we created the concept of a software factory, a def, which is really a DevSecOps pipeline, a CICD pipeline with gates. And we have uh, three state of main gates. We have the change management gates, so stuff like how many eyes on code do you have to approve code change and do change management enforcement, configuration management, all that kind of stuff through Git, through code. And then we have testing gates, so how many tests you have for unit testing, integration testing, end-to-end -end testing, and we mandate test coverage percentages. And then we have cyber gates with traditional static dynamic code analysis, fuzzing, container security scanning, build of material, running your dependent, knowing your dependencies and your build of material, stuff like that. 
And then, so that those are the gates of the pipeline. And if your software passes the gate, and that's your process, right? The, the process of that pipeline, then, and if it's running on an approved platform, for us, we use Kubernetes, so we have to approve the Kubernetes distribution. It could be Rancher, it could be Convoy, it could be OpenShift, it could be a, a VMware. Uh, doesn't matter as long as they're approved at that classification level. If you have an accredited platform and then you have a, a CI/CD pipeline on top approved, and your platform also includes the cyber stack we talked about. So for us, we call it the Cycar uh, Container Security Stack, which is all open source. By the way, we, we put it all uh, for free for your listeners. They're going on software.af.mail. Uh, they can see um, inside the, the, the these document section, they can see all the architecture documents, all the container source code, the binaries, everything is open to the world. So anyone can reuse the entire stack we've built. But the Cycar stack brings zero trust, centralized logging and behavior, continuous runtime detection and CV scanning. And by having that running in your platform, we get the continuous monitoring and centralized logs we need. And by having the process in the pipeline, you can then uh, automatically pass those gates. And what comes out of the pipeline in terms of software is accredited, uh, fielded to be deployed on the platform. And the last piece is, you then authorize a team to use the platform. So uh, for us, we have a team called Platform One. Uh, that's the DOD-wide team for DevSecOps. We don't mandate it, but people can come and use it as a managed service or have a dedicated instance of Platform One. And, and Platform One team then trains the, the new team coming on board. And all they have to do is to get the training so they don't have to go and accredit the platform. They don't have to go and reinvent the process and the gates. They can just inherit all that and get started. And, and so we saved about a hundred years of time in one year by moving to DevSecOps, by pushing uh, initially 37 programs, now uh, 60 plus programs to DevSecOps, which are really the largest weapon systems on the planet with programs like F-35, GBSD, which is all the nuclear uh, arsenal on the ground. So we're really touching very critical systems and multi-billion, if not trillion, the law funding programs over 10 years. And so that is really how we end up saving about 12 to 18 months of time for every five year of time planned for per program. So that compounds to that hundred year of time, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, I'd say. I, of course, know, but uh, it'd be interesting for you to talk a little bit about how your work has inspired others, both in the DOD and beyond. Yeah, first we were excited when we started to see a lot of different teams come and use, like I said, the, the source code and the containers. So we have what we call the Iron Bank, which is the centralized secure container uh, registry where teams can go and consume our containers. And we have 80 plus companies pushing containers on Iron Bank and, and also a ton of open source software there. So anyone can go and consume that and use them. Of course, they still have to buy the license of the commercial products, but they get the, the hardened version a uh, more secure version of these um, Lego blocks. And, and, and then we we created a bunch of training, documentation, architecture documents, guidance that's now being used by about 12, you know, federal agencies inside of DOD and, and companies too. I had multiple conversations with several financial institutions, healthcare institutions, retailers, you, you name it countries outside of the U.S., from Japan to Canada to France to whatever. So it's pretty amazing. And then we have NIST, 
that I came to the table to with my, my friend Ron Ross to try to take this and uh, make that a, a series of NIST publications, special publications to make that a kind of a government standard. They have a great publication already on Service Mesh, and now the, the goal is to do a, more like a DevSecOps one and, and more containers and QAs publications. It's exciting to see how uh, this is spreading. At the same time, the fact that we open sourced it and uh, made it widely available uh, for anyone to consume, I think was a big factor of that. We have the Terraform script. We work with all these Kubernetes distribution companies to on the repo as well. So people can just download that and have a more secure version than what they would get if they would just go and download the, the upstream version. But yet we're not forking code. We're not, we're not cheating the system. It's all back, uh, pushed back to the community and uh, making us uh, uh, move faster, better, stronger together. That's great. That's a great positive impact globally that you're making. Thinking about people who are setting up a DevSecOps program at their companies or large organization that they're dealing with, what advice would you give them if they were just starting today? I think that the first thing that people need to realize is the larger the organization, the the more reinventing the wheel you're going to have. When I started, we have dozens of teams building their own Kubernetes stack, their own TACD pipeline from scratch. And while you don't want to have a one type fits all, you also don't want to have 50 million uh, teams reinventing the wheel. So building an enterprise service like we've done with Platform One and Cloud One. Cloud One is our cloud office with Amazon and Azure, so multi-cloud abstract. Distracted, no look in, no look into to cloud providers. So same identity across cloud, and then having a platform one stack that has that built-in security stack. But yeah, multiple options of containers. We have about 200 plus containers, 23 databases, 16 programming languages. You name it, we, we have a bunch of bunch of options. But yet we have the same cyber stack. We have the same logging uh, capability. So a lot of the the left hand gates, we use GitOps with Argo CD to be able to, to have that GitOps uh, mentality of everything is code. There's no drift in production. No one in production having commands to, to make changes. So it's all in code. So we're pushing a lot of the pretty advanced best practices. But by doing it centrally, we can then train people. We have this training program. We partnered with the Linux Foundation, the CNCF, and O'Reilly, the, the books to bring unbiased content on IT. We try to give an hour a day to our people to go and learn and keep up with, with the pace of relevance and have that continuous learning, uh, self-learning. Because I, I don't believe that classes or, or anything that's not at broader scale is going to succeed because first we have 100,000 people we have to train this year, but also we have a uh, different level of maturity. So having a self-learning uh, capability is critical where they can just go and have a cloud sandbox to put it to good use so they don't learn in the vacuum. So having that centralized team, to answer your question, where that team will provide all these services, turnkey, and I guess whether you call it a CSO or chief software officer or not, having a very top reporting, I don't know if it's reporting to the CIO or if it's reporting to a CEO, CFO, CEO, I don't care, but the fact is, it is probably a very senior role because we, for me, if, if I look at it and I put back my investor hat, I was, I was an investor and, and I, know, I know how to do that as well. You, I would probably now look at their, the, the maturity of, a, of a, the DevSecOps team of an organization to decide whether or not I'm going to invest in a company now because that's going to determine if they can keep up 
and innovate in the next uh, three to five years, or they're just going to go be- get behind. And right. so the stronger the, matter, the maturity in DevSecOps, the stronger, the more likely they are able to uh, react to change, react to events, learn, rapidly uh, make changes. And no organization should undermine how important it is to use DevSecOps in, in 2020. But more importantly, for the government side, I would say it's, it's borderline uh, criminal, right, uh, not to use it in 2020 because we're just wasting taxpayer money, right? It's like bad use of, of the taxpayer money if we're not using it wisely and, and not using these kind of principles in 2020 when DevOps is now you know, 10 years old, Agile 20 years old, is just not something that we should let happen. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And one thing you talked about there is the the chief software officer role again, which I think is is quite interesting and probably it's hopefully a trend we start to see increase. But in that discussion, one thing that we've noticed quite a bit is in most commercial organizations, the security rolls up to something like a chief information security officer who may then may roll up to a CIO sometimes to audit or risk management and has a different reporting line. But typically the scope of what they do is all things security. And often a lot of the focus will be on things that are happening in the perimeter and and phishing threats and these sorts of things and what's happening in their security operations center. And then you have a separate reporting line that goes to the either CTO or lines of business that often are in charge of software and they don't specifically have security as part of their area of responsibility. And so what we often see is this idea of software security falling a little bit between the cracks, not really a primary responsibility of the CISO, not really a primarily responsibility of the CIO or CTO, even though maybe it should be. And so it, it often doesn't get the first level of focus that you would see with, uh, with what you just described. Do you think that's a trend that's going to change? Do you think it's a chief software officer that's going to come and bring this together? Or do you think that's poised to continue to happen for a while where security and uh, software development are in different parts of the company? Yeah, I guess it's, it's also very well uh, depend on the, the size of the organization. I think I would not have a CSO, chief software officer, not chief security officer, because that's also another problem. We have CSO with two different meanings. Sure. Now, chief software and chief security, but the, I would not have a chief software officer in a small organization. You want to be lean, you want to be you know, very aggressive. At the same time, it's almost a full-time job to, to build a DevSecOps stack and the right team and build a cybersecurity baked in. And it's, it's hand in hand with a CISO, I guess. It's, it's very difficult to have all these silos when we're trying to shift things left and move to DevSecOps where everyone is part of the same team. The more uh, of these uh, C-level uh, roles you have, the less likely it is that you're going to be coordinated and uh, lean. <clears throat> and that just compounds the problem of having silos and struggling with uh, adoption and coordination and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's a challenge, right? I, I was, that's why I was never at first uh, too excited about the, the CSO concept. But at the same time, I realized all the stuff we had to do and all the work we have to do to to create all the, the good stuff we, we created in, in the Air Force and DoD now. But so I, I don't think I would have been able to do that without having a dedicated uh, role just to focus on that because now you're spread too thin and you have too many things to deal with. 
Now, of course, the title doesn't matter. That could have been under a CIO. On my side, I'm on the acquisition side. That's where the funding is. That's very different. So it would be almost like the equivalent to reporting to a CFO on the commercial side, which is interesting, or maybe a COO. I don't know, but it's always a blurry line for for the government. But I would say certainly trying to shift everybody left and have them be part of the same team. So I guess maybe to some degree having a the same reporting. I, I don't like the CISO reporting to to the CIO because they are complete competing interests. And that's back, back to your point on the balance, right, between cyber and innovation. The CIO has to innovate with the CTO. And same thing, right, is the CTO reporting to the CIO, is the CTO reporting directly to the CEO. It's, I don't think there is a rule for success. I think it's about how well people will work together. And I, I think at some point, it only makes sense if the organization is very large. I think sure. the more you can cut and, and remove the silos and have the same reporting structure, regardless of title, I think the more likely you're going to succeed. Of course, being a C-level executive is great for people's ego. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's another thing. Yeah, of course. Okay, sounds good. Look, I, I appreciate uh, all the insight today, Nicholas. Is there anything else you wanted to share with the, the listeners before we end today? The one thing I wanted to share is, like I said, we open source our stack. And again, I'm going to repeat the link, you know, software.af.mail. It would be great, right, to have a two-way street, right? This is not a one-way a partnership. So we're, we have multiple organizations starting to share code with us. And really, we, we can be stronger together and, and move faster together. And so anyone that's willing to contribute containers or, or look at the source code and improve, we're not saying everything is as secure as it could be, but I think there's plenty of room for improvements. And so if you see things, if you see some of the open source projects we open source and you want to join and contribute, that would be uh, obviously very uh, much appreciated. Sounds good. We'll make sure that uh, people know that and we get the word out to, that this is an open source community people can contribute to. Thanks so much for your time today, Nicholas. As always, uh, really appreciate it and very insightful. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can't get enough of the balancing act? Make sure to check out our website at www.securitycompass.com and be sure to subscribe to our channel for more episodes. Mm -hmm.